You're listening to a Southern Star Media Production. I mean, the minute I saw it, I said, oh, my God. I mean, the, the second I saw it, I just said, oh, wow, this is a story that, you know, my God, oh, my, they haven't seen the likes of this in my lifetime. Uh, I'm not defending it for a second because it is completely indefensible. I mean, 100%. But, like, there was two TDs there at the same time. There were, you know, and people will forget that side of it. There was two TDs out of 160 TDs and Dahl Aaron were at that event. So it wasn't like they were all there, to, you know, which is kind of the, the, the narrative that can emerge potentially. And we just want to be careful not to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. Hello and welcome to the Southern Stars Coronavirus Podcast. I'm the news editor, Siobhan Cronin, and this week our featured interview is with former Fine Gael TD, Jim Daly. A former school teacher, publican and politician, Mr Daly has recently taken up a new role as an advocate for the home care sector. He talks to us about life after politics shortly. In our musical segment this week, we will have our digital manager, Jack McCarran's choice from our archive of Southern Star sessions, all recorded live in recent years at our Southern Star studio in Skibbereen. He has chosen music from folk singer John Black. But first, this week's interview. Jim Daly has been a school teacher, a principal, a publican, a politician, and now he has a new role with the board of HCCI, that's Home and Community Care Ireland, the national body representing the 80 companies that employ 10,000 carers providing home care to 20,000 older and vulnerable people throughout Ireland. During the pandemic, he also volunteered at his local hospital in Clonakilty. And he spoke to me about this and more a little earlier this week. So Jim, you bowed out of politics with somewhat short notice before the last general election. And can you tell us your reasons for doing that at the time? It came as quite a shock to some people, I think. Yeah, it probably did. Look, I didn't intend for it to be at such short notice. I didn't anticipate an election. I don't think anybody did uh, last September. To come in February, uh, technically this government should still be, or that government should still be, but unfortunately it did happen very fast and that was difficult for the party to hold the seat and obviously I regret that and I wish that I hadn't any hand actor part to play in losing the seat for Fine Gael and West Cork. Uh, and my decision, I suppose, didn't help that. There's no point in pretending otherwise. Why did I leave politics? I mean, as time goes on I can distill it a little bit better down for myself uh, I think there was a number of different reasons one was I mean the whole political thing is so consuming I spent 16 years in it uh, I am a consummate professional I think when I go when I undertake something you know I didn't have to do politics I was full-time in it from day one I gave up a teaching career and was a full-time county councillor when very few people were and I, you know I was a young man with a young family and mortgage and all of those obligations so I was deeply committed and it can become very consuming and I realized uh, while I was progressing, I was happy to continue to do that. But there's a reason why after 20 years as a politician, you actually get a pension. No, you don't get it till you're 65 years of age. But 20 years is deemed as full service because it is such a, an all-consuming profession. So I did 16 years of full-time politics, and that takes its toll. It just does. One of the reasons. Secondly, there's a little bit of disillusionment. Will you know, come in, you come in full of idealism. You want to change the world. You start as a county councillor, become a backbench TD, become a minister. And you realize all the way along that, you know what? Yeah, you can do a certain amount, but there's a lot of things you can't do. And some of that, you know, when you, there's some little frustrations locally and all of that will start to take their, their toll a little bit, which was well. So that was an influencing factor. Kind of had enough of politics seen at 16, after 16 years to know what I was about to, to find it. And, and thirdly then, and, and most importantly, was certainly the family element. I mean, I've had the best two months of my 47 years of life this July and August. Uh, had an absolute ball with the kids. Um, you know, we we actually were separated during lockdown. My kids were over in Estonia. It just happened. My mom passed on at the height of the, the COVID, just as it was breaking out in this country. And as it happens, their great granny died over in Estonia. So they went to Estonia to that funeral and got caught in the lockdown. And we thought they were there for a week, maybe or 10 days or two weeks. And they ended up there for almost four months. Now they had a ball. They were working in a farm outdoors all the time and all of the rest of it. And I was talking to them twice a day online. So, you know, and I was still minister. I had functions to it, you know, administering all of that. But they came back in late June, early July, just as I was completely relieved from my duties. So we had a fantastic July and August. And, you know, I think the hardest thing I found, Siobhan, was... Uh, Really what got to me and great to me was I could be away four days a week and five days a week. And when I came back, 
we were under such pressure again to be appearing locally, to go to events locally and to attend, you know, funerals and so on, all the things that were expected of a TD locally. And the kids were like, you know, dad, when you'll be home, I'll be home later, I'll be home later. And then they would not go anywhere with me. So if I did have a Sunday off and I'd say, lads, you know what, we'd go down to the old time trashing downtown. No, dad, no. They wouldn't go to the shop with me eventually. My own children would not go anywhere with me. Because you'd get bombarded. Not bombarded, but you know, invariably, people saw you and they saw an opportunity. And that was great for a while and I loved it and, you know, whatever. But eventually, after 16 years and your kids were starting to pass you out in height and all the rest, and you're saying, you know what? So I think I did a very smart thing and I was knowing when to bow out, uh, when to, I'd like to think at the top of my game, I think I had huge delivery, for, and I'm not going to bore you with any of those, this isn't a political broadcast, but I'd like to you think... You were a junior I, minister at the time, so that was pretty high ranking. And, and in the Department of Health, I mean, a junior minister in the Department of Health has a bigger budget, I certainly had a mental health, and all the people done a lot of my senior colleagues in some of the other departments, like Arts Heritage, and, you know, and so on, even Justice, you know, no, some, I, I forget which one's senior ones anyway, but look, it, you know, the whole level of health is just manic, and the whole media drive, and the whole demands, and the whole constant, or whatever, so I, I had achieved a lot, and, you know, I think delivery locally, and as a politician, I had been rather successful, I had fought four elections successfully, topped four twice, and, and so on, so I had a lot done, and I a lot achieved and I was very happy with my lot and I realised that you know what and I'm so grateful that I got that insight to say you know what Jim there is a bit more to life and you don't have to keep continuing on this uh, Ferris wheel or whatever hamster wheel and you know your kids are going to be gone very shortly the eldest guy is 17 I teach him to drive now you know I have time for do those things so my late mom passed I had time for her before she went away and you know those kind of things I was able to do things that I wouldn't have ordinarily able to do so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to serve in politics but I'm also thrilled that I knew when to, to get off the stage and move exit stage left. Okay now you're a member of, of Fine Gael so apart from being a publican and a teacher which is probably <laughs> very stereotypical Fine Gael politician what attracted you to the party? Why, why did you choose that above all the others you could have to be honest, there was never any kind of, you know, I was born into Fine Gael. My dad was a canvasser of the local branch. And, you know, I loved Fine Gael. I was great friends with PJ Sheen, the Lord of Mercy, and him and Jim O'Keefe. And used to canvas with him as even as a young fella, small guys, we were running around with our fellas. So Fine Gael was into jeans. Um, so there was never, I didn't have to sit up one day and say, I wonder what party will I join? But I will honestly say, hand in my heart, again, after 16 years in, in political life, uh, public life, that I never once regretted that, you know, or I never once said, I wonder if I made the wrong party, or God, I like that party, or whatever. No, I mean, it was a very natural fit for me anyway, all the way. But the decision-making was non-existent because I was born into it. Right, okay. Now, I mentioned some of the careers. So tell, tell me which one of, of between school teacher, principal, public and politician, now you're moving into the private sector might be a bit early to to give a, a rating for the private sector but of all of those which one did you enjoy and don't be a politician and say I enjoyed them all equally <laughs> um I, I'd have to say politics you know uh, I would have to say politics no doubt about it look I was a public in my 20s I had my own pub at 22 it was an absolute blast of course it was I ran a really busy pub used to be organizing concerts and the devil knows what below Ross Carpey and you know as a young free guide it was just a ball and a blast uh, and lots of money and all of that and I was teaching then and should teach was lovely for a few years but you know for me I am somebody who likes to keep doing new things and you know whatever so teacher was a little bit restrictive when I look back in it I uh, loved it as a young teacher but I wasn't going to ever uh, stay at that. it's something that was so in my head restrictive you know I like to be doing new things and new challenges and new opportunities and all of that and I'm a risk taker by nature. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur out and out, I know I am, and that's what I like doing is, is making change, making things happen. So teaching isn't as, you know, I went on to be principal and I thought maybe that might might satisfy that whatever in me, drive in me, but it ultimately it didn't. So the pub was great and teacher was great, but politics was second to none. I mean, even becoming a county councillor and having the ability to make change happen and to influence change and, you know, impacting on people's lives. And, you know, as I said, when I left, I may not have changed the world, but you changed somebody's world all the way along the way. And, and that was fantastic. Then I was mayor of the county. What an absolute honour, what a great, great, you know, job to do. Becoming a TD was electric and then becoming a Minister of State, you know. There, it was so full of highs with all the challenges it presented time-wise and management and it was so consuming. It still was just an amazing opportunity. Uh, but you become beholden to it and that's why I'm very, very happy that I knew when to get off the stage. It wasn't that I was afraid I was going to lose my seat. I don't think I would have had for what it's worked um, in the last election. Nobody can ever say that for definite. I had no fear 
but it was great to just leave on my own terms and have done as much as I'd done and, you know, positive. So politics had to be the favourite profession, no doubt about it. Well, there's no doubt that you need a bit of a thick neck, I think, in politics. And I've mentioned this to you before because, I mean, I'm in this business 35 years myself and I have seen um, it go from being quite, um, I suppose, um, not too difficult a job in the early days because all the criticism was face to face. You could see who was criticizing you and have, you know, have it out with them. Nowadays, Mm -hmm. you're getting it right, left and center and very often from anonymous trollers on social media sites who can say what they want because nobody can find them. And uh, I mean, had, did that have any influence on your decision to, to get out? Because it's become really, a really tough business for anyone in, in the public eye. Yeah, for me, it wasn't really an influencing factor in, in deciding to exit the stage left. But I do agree with you, it is very tough. And like when I look at my predecessors, the late PJ Sheehan, the Lord of Mercy and Jim O'Keefe, were TDs up to 2011, which is only 10 years ago. But like nobody in West Cork had their mobile phone number, their Twitter handle, or, you know, very few, there wasn't a dozen people had either those gentlemen's mobile phone number or had their Twitter handle or their Facebook because they didn't exist, obviously. And, and all of these ways, but while I was a TD, you know, I have about 5,000 numbers on my phone, so I can imagine how many people have my number on their phone. And these people can text you, can ring you there, and then you have office numbers, you have all of that. You can be caught on Twitter, or got on Twitter, you can be caught on Facebook, you can be caught on WhatsApp, you can be caught, you know, there's so many ways of getting to you. And even on a Sunday, if you did take an hour out, you know, and just close the curtains and decide to sit inside at home and watch the movie, you know, there was a ping on your phone and actually somebody was tweeting or something and, you know, this kind of thing, and you were drawn back into it again. So I think the mobile phone radically altered uh, the face of politics and what politicians have to do and then you add that to the kind of the, the drag of having to travel 300 miles to work and you know stay in hotels a couple of nights and all of that kind of thing so all of that certainly but it wasn't a reason for me leaving I mean really and truly the social media side of it was not uh, a, a factor for me yeah you have a neck maybe having a pub and things like that earlier in my life and you know allowed me to kind of get used to fellas telling me to fake off and what they taught me and all of that I don't know I'm not sure what but that, maybe the teaching does the teaching train you to be a bit more patient maybe and more gentle <laughs> bit of all of that I think that's a bit of all of that and I think you know if you're a risk taker you're kind of more able for that look I was one of 11 children as well and all of that kind of things so I was well used to being hustled around I wasn't raised in cotton wool at all I uh, have you 10 older brother, or 10 not older I was the middle which I often think is interesting I was the middle child I had five older five older brothers and sisters and five younger brothers and sisters and I was so nondescript I was so nondescript you know I mean I know when I went into politics somebody even local people would say which one of them is him I can't place Jim you know I can place I know Coleman I know JC I know whichever and tried to place me so maybe it was a bit of the middle child syndrome that drove mm-hmm. me into creating Why didn't uh, you be a bit different to stand out well to be noticed and to try and uh, you know say I, I could do that too or whatever because I was so nondescript growing up I wasn't into sport I wasn't good at sport I wasn't an achiever in academic I wasn't doing anything really of any significance and then kind of hit late teens, 20s and decided, you know what, here goes, I'm going to try and buy a pub and get into that and went on from there and, you know, in school and in politics and a bit of the, I can do that element to it, you know, uh, what's sort of Jack of all is. trades, Jim, is it? Yeah. Yeah, well, and a master of none, I don't know, I suppose it was just a, a belief in yourself to, to drive on and whatever. And so maybe that allowed me then to take the knocks as well, because I wasn't that sensitive to people's criticism online and things like that. You know, I didn't really mind, maybe I'd enough done at that stage of my life to... I wasn't going to be beholden to the, and I think I, politics was always a short-term project for me. Like I was never a lifer. I was never a lifer. You know, I would have said that to many people who knew me very, very well would have known that my real, you know, I remember having a kind of a psychological assessment done before I gave up teaching full-time to go into it. You know, I went to this guy, a coach really, a life coach yeah. and said to him, you know, I answered 600 questions and all this. And I said, will I be, you know, suitable for politics? And he said, yeah. He said, and you'll be very good at it. But ultimately, you'll never be fully satisfied in it because you're an out-and-out entrepreneur. Right. You know, and I think that's why you'll see more of where I am. I know you covered last week my latest appointment to a board. And you'll see me going on to other boards and getting involved with companies. I'm probably of an age now. I'm in my late 40s. I don't really want to be doing it myself all over again, you know, take a huge, but I'd love to be part of entrepreneurial life of business. So I think working with companies in that space, I have a good knowledge of the public side of things, you know, from local authority to my time at the Dáil or whatever. It's not about influence and favour, it's just about knowing the world and knowing how things work and knowing how to get on and, and achieve. And ultimately, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, and I'd like to be part of that, that development for companies and that growth for companies. 
and I think that's where my my please God my next career will will lie. Okay, well we're going to talk about that in a minute, but just tell me first, what do you make of Irish politics since you left? Because it's probably been the most turbulent, I'd say, few months probably in your whole political lifetime. Uh, what's happened yeah. in the in the last few weeks alone? What do you make of all the shenanigans between the former party and and their new coalition partners? Yeah, and did I, I mean, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael coming together was probably the least story in all of it. Like that should have been a, a huge trauma, a drama of its own, and that's probably the least story in all of this. Uh, it's not over by a long shot. There's there's still a good bit of bedding down, and uh, people in the media and all of that are going to have an absolute field there with this government for another few months um, till the end of this year at the very least. And when you think about it, it's natural. I mean, this government wasn't, it didn't have a natural conception. Normally, governments are conceived out of a, an electoral win. You know, when a party gets a thumping majority or, an, or even a victory, at least in the polls, and there's a clear winner and there's momentum and they want to govern and, and all of that. Whereas this was born out of betrothal and, and mystery and misfortune and I don't want to be there and I don't want to be there and I didn't have enough to be there. And so they were all, as I say, it wasn't a healthy conception that this government, uh, for want of a better way, put it. And I think that's what you're seeing play out now and parties were kind of pushed in together and, you know, it was like an arranged match, you know, arranged marriage. An unhappy you know. arranged marriage. Yeah, and the dowry was given over quickly and you go off and whether you like it or not and you've got to make that work. So you're seeing a little bit of that play out in the early uh, times of this government. I didn't anticipate as much of it, but I would have said, yeah, you're going to certainly have an element of that. But, but what uh, the, that the made... behaviour of some of them, Jim, now, you know, have the, the Clifton Golf Society carry on? Did, were you surprised by any of that? Uh, look, I mean, the minute I saw it, I said, oh, my God. I mean, the, the second I saw it, I just said, oh, well, this is a story that, you know, my God, oh, my, they haven't seen the likes of this in my lifetime. Uh, I'm not defending it for a second because it is completely indefensible. I mean, 100%. But, like, there was two TDs there at the same time. There were, you know, and people will forget that side of it. There was two TDs out of 160 TDs and Dáil Éireann were at that event. So it wasn't like they were all there, to, you know, which is kind of the, the, the narrative that can emerge potentially. And we just want to be careful not to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, that's the only thing I was saying. It. But look, it was, I mean, how... Uh, like I say, Derek Cleary is one of the nicest guys that you come across in politics, the former Minister for Agriculture from Mayo, uh, had been overlooked for the senior position first. I was gutted for him because he's just one of those decent, deserving guys. Thrilled to see him get his chance and didn't like to see him do that. Uh, I, I kind of, and I'm not making excuse for Dara, but I was wondering, like, he has three or four advisors around him. And like as a minister, you can run on top of your head a bit and you can be kind of going from pillar to post and this thing is being thrown in front of you and you're reading free stuff and it's you're inside and something and you're not thinking. But there are people paid around you to kind of keep the, the eyes open and watch what's happening. And I house somebody around Dara didn't say minister, I would have, not maybe they did, maybe he ignored it. And if that case, you know, I don't know enough about it, but like that was an extraordinary event. Um, but like when you think of the, all the traumas that this government have endured, um, it's just, it's... It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it really is. And, uh, and as Are I say, you happy to be out of it, Jim? I, I genuinely am. Now, I, I'm still very addicted to it and I'm surprised at myself. I thought I might close off from it, but I'm glued to all the events and putting on Morning Ireland in the morning, not in an obsessive, healthy way or anything. But Maybe I don't. It's a smug way now, Jim, is it? That's yeah, yeah, your like, problem I mean, now. It's not mine anymore. I always had an interest in politics and I clearly have still, and I clearly have, you know, and I know now why I went into it because I still love watching it. But my God, am I a thousand times more comfortable and happier as a spectator. And there was a little bit of me being a little bit, and it sounds a bit, you know, a little bit too honest or too straight talking for politics. Politics is also the art of you need to do a bit more canoodly and kind of keep everybody sweet. And spin, spin is probably what the art of politics is all about. <laughs> well, you have to kind of, yeah, sometimes you have to keep your opinions to yourself, Jim. You know, I was often told that at the Fine Gael meeting, so, you know, Herb, you know, if you shut your mouth a bit, you know, Jim, and that kind of thing. And, and they, you know, I know where those guys were coming from. That, uh, so, you know, sometimes you could try and bring everybody with you and, and say less. And I wasn't that type of politician. You know, I, I mean, I often look back at, say, the, an interesting one was the Inskibreen there on your own doorstep, the plastics factory in the public meeting. I'm very, very friendly with Brendan McCarthy, who was the head guy in that. And, you know, Brendan would have reached out to me and I would say, Brendan, I'm not going to go into one of your meetings. You know, I have no say or sway in this. This is going to Board Panola. You know, Board Panola is 100% independent in this country. Either we have a system where politicians decide what goes ahead or an independent, qualified, professional group of people do. We've chosen as a society, and I support it, that an independent, professional body does it. You know, no, but you know that, that could be seen by some people as 
you didn't want to touch it because it was too controversial because for everybody who was against it there was somebody who was for it because they could see jobs coming to the town absolutely and, and i take your point and this, this is getting to the kernel of it of, of the point i want to make which is absolutely true and fair fair point to to raise but if you look at jim daly as a politician then back in the day i mean i was i remember going to the parkway hotel 600 parents and teachers up in arms over small schools this i wasn't a td a wet week at this stage and they were waiting for me the former teacher former INTO member to stand up and bang the pulpit and say i'm on your side and i stood up and said to 600 people i actually don't support what you're at here tonight but i think of it and pascal she had a camera there from RT. Like I was incredibly brave in politics and the ambulance issue in West Cork and the um, the uh, um, protection of life or the abortion issue that, you know, materialised. I was the only public representative that was on the side of 67% of the population in West Cork that was standing up for women's rights at the time, even though I come from a very, con you know, traditionally conservative area. So I don't think fear ever crippled me or caused me to make a decision like that to keep out of a meeting in Skibreen about the plastics factory. What I was trying to get across there was, I can go in there and punch there and I can be false and pretend that I'll help you guys and I'm on your side. But the reality is I have zero input into that and I'd rather be honest with you and straight up front and tell you that from day one. And I actually support a system where politicians do not have the say on who gets planning and who doesn't. You know, and that was, so trying to get that across isn't easy. And of course, like what you said, it'll be seen as, oh, he was a coward, afraid to come in. Or I remember somebody said, Jim Daly should get off the fence and all that. I wasn't a fence person ever in politics. If anything, I should have stayed on the fence and more issues and kept my head down. Now I didn't have any loss in politics, any electoral loss or anything. So I have no regrets, but it was tough. Like the ambulance issue, which I believe passionately in, and I won't rehash it now, but you know, those kind of issues, the small schools issue. I mean, I felt very strongly at the time that you cannot support the retention of small schools with a ratio of one is to 12. I think two teachers for 12 students and they were moving at two teachers to 20, which is one is to 10. When my child was in Clonakilty with 34 students in their class, you know, and you cheat. So I would have thought about these things very, very deeply and, and understood them and, and taken a position that was, I believe, well-founded and well sourced but it wasn't always popular because people wouldn't see it and you know it takes a lot of work to, to bring people with you and all of that so anyway they're just examples of of my time in politics that when i look back and now i'd be very proud that i did stand and be counted and you know take a support of leah bradford like i was always courageous i was always not a bit afraid to go offside and you know a lot of the Fine Gael faithful in west cork were very very disappointed with me to do that and not to support Simon Coveney, but I did what I genuinely believed was the right thing to do, as I always did. So, you know, and that's not saying that I was great. I'm just saying that that part of politics um, is interesting and I always admire. I mean, I heard your podcast with Holly Kearns there recently. I was PD the Plato's at home and listening to that podcast. And I thought she was fascinating that she was so honest. I mightn't agree with everything she said or anything, but I just thought it was such a breath of fresh air to have a politician who seems to be thinking deeply about things, has a position on them, and a well thought out and articulated one. I thought that was so refreshing. I'm not here to promote the Social Democrats. They wouldn't be a party. I'd be supporting their philosophy. I'm just being, you know, general in, in the whole political issue. And I'd like to see politics evolve more into politicians that stand up and say what they genuinely believe and have well founded, rather than trying to be all things to all people, which but is the prevailing wind. Interesting you should say that now, because do you think that there is a future for the big traditional party? I mean, you know, there's two trains of thought here, and, and one is that we are seeing the demise of the traditional party, and that's what, what has, has us in this strange coalition of three at the moment. Like, mm. do you think there's a future for Fine Gael, as they are, or yeah. do they just need to totally transform and maybe move a little bit more left? Yeah, no, I'll give you, I'll give you my honest thoughts. And again, I'm, I'm as likely to be wrong as the next person. I don't uh, hold any authority in this other than my insights or my experience. But my, my genuine belief is, as of now, if you were to have an election in two years and all things being equal as the, as the trajectory is going up, I think what you will see, and this isn't the political bias on my part, trust me on that, I think you will have a, an election, or, you know, you'll have straight down the middle election, just like England, just like America, between the left and the right. And you'll have Fianna Gael winning out on the right, and you'll have Sinn Féin winning out on the left. I think Fianna Fáil are being squeezed very much in recent years. I think they have tried too hard to match Fine Gael being fiscally responsible and more to the right on one hand. And then they were trying to be Sinn Féin on the other day. And, you know, I think the water charges was a very seismic moment or, you know, for Fianna Fáil, where they relented fully, did a complete U-turn and whatever. And I think in these really challenging times, people, I never, ever underestimated people's sense of fairness, right and wrong when it comes to politics, you know, and they have a, a nose that is just uncanny. 
they will read through the BS very, very quickly. And I think they're looking at Fianna Fáil here and now. All of this can change, right? But here and now, they're kind of saying, you know what, you're trying to be all things to all people, not interested, sorry. You know, I think the next election, if it was based on the, the dynamics of today, would be a straight down the, the middle contest between do you want Leo Radcliffe as Taoiseach or do you want Mary Lou Macdonald as Taoiseach, left or right, a bit like, you know, England and America and that kind of a polarised, more, more polarised um, division coming. Now that can change and Fianna Fáil could overtake Fine Gael in that space, whatever, but I think one of those centrist parties will, will dominate and will move more to the right and represent that space and there will be a party on the left, which will dominate. Do you think, could we ever see the merger of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? Um, you could, but it may not be on paper and out there in the open and all of that. It could just subsume one part. It could just disappear, you know, whatever. If they, I mean, if you look at the polling at the moment where Fianna Gael are in the high, thir- or mid- high 30s, Sinn Féin are there or thereabouts and Fianna Fáil are way down at 13 to 14%. And I'm not being party political. You know, I, I think I was always, always very broad-minded and when it came to party politics and got into lots of trouble for that, that I wasn't a black Fianna Gael or a black, you know. So I'm not saying that in an anti-Fianna Fáil or, or generate anti, they may well rebound and come back and do great government and all that and I wish them all the very very best but in the here and now and the current dynamic you could actually see a party disappearing further or going down further unless they arrest that slide and start to to you know re-establish themselves and again it's about I think really in politics that it's about defining yourself on hard decisions people love it I mean I listened to Sammy Wilson this evening on drive time I don't know whether you heard him or not but Barry Wilson and you know he had it yesterday about Trump but by God you know he gave it as good as he you couldn't defend what he was saying but I really admired that he had a well clearly thought out position and he was able to give everything back as good as he got from Mary Wilson, who was can be quite aggressive. I know you're a fan. I've seen you tweet about her. I didn't always see I time with Mary, but you know, so I really think that's where politics is going. People have a fantastic nose. And they, you know, uh, I remember principal saying to me inside the manway that day at the school where it was a packed emotional meeting and our children and, you know, all of this school and how it could all be brought out. And this principal came up to me and she said, through gritted teeth, after I stand up and saying, I'm sorry, I don't support you and I won't be supporting you. I had two other government colleagues there on the night who were TDs who said, oh, we'll talk to the minister, we'll talk to the minister. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't support you and I won't be talking to the minister on your behalf. And I could have been booed out of the hall. I wasn't. As it happened, I wasn't, you know, and they were so shocked because I'm a former teacher. But this principal said to me, she said, I had true gritted teeth. I never voted Fine Gael in my life, but I'd be tempted to tonight after hearing you. You know, even though she was a principal of a small school and I, you know, mm-hmm. she just said, at least you have the courage to say where you stand and to stand over what you say. You know, and that's, I think that's what I know, but want. Jim, do you know what's very ironic about all that? Is mm-hmm. that you're not in politics anymore. So maybe mm-hmm. the, the guy who stands up and tells it like it is, their future is sealed. They won't, they won't stick with it. Or they well, can't stick that, with it. Or maybe subtly yeah. they'd be elbowed out and made feel, this isn't for me. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there is a future there for people. I mean, I'll put it, one of my own lads said to me that I'd like to go into politics, you know, I'd say do. I still think it's a very noble profession. Uh, if I had my time over again, I'd do it all again. I'd do another 16 years, you know, of the 16 years past, I wouldn't do 16 more years. Um, you know, I, I thankfully didn't lose an election ever and, you know, found that, uh, you know, I managed to be a survivor through it all. And I think, you know, you command respect along the way. And I think people have, I think actually the politicians are behind the curve. I think the people are well ahead. You know, I really do. And I mean, just take that on the um, the protection of life bill. You know, I think that was an example where so many politicians were just terrified of, you know, taking any stand and whatever and stuck with the traditional. And like, as I say, I was the only public representative who was in tune with 67% of all that. And that's a boasting. I'm just saying, you know, be courageous stand up, inform yourself, don't just be the, the lobby fodder to the lobby group and supporting every group. Uh, people really will appreciate it and they will, you know, um, they will reward you afterwards. So I think my leaving politics isn't a reflection on politics. I'd be very, you know, other than the all-consuming nature of it. That's the part I think we would have to do. That's the part I would have a difficulty with. But politics per se and my decision to leave it does not reflect badly on politics. Okay. Um, and so moving now to your new role, which is in the home care sector mm-hmm. and I suppose a little bit of that is as a result of having been junior minister and minister for mental health and older people so tell me how did you come to that role and why do you think that's that's the right place for you at the moment 
Yeah, what that role is, and thank you, I know your paper covered it last week, and I got, uh, I didn't realise you had so many readers, or I don't know, was it online or where people are consuming <laughs> How could you be surprised, Jim? <laughs> yeah, the amount of people that I met genuinely in the past week who said, well, on texts and everything that I got from people, well done on your new job. It actually isn't a job per se, it's a, I'm a board member, so I'm a, mem a director mm -hmm. of the, the board, so, you know, I attend their meetings to advise them. They're the umbrella organization that represent all of the home care companies, the private ones in Ireland. Home care is going to be huge in Ireland. Um, I think you'll see in the next budget and from there on, there will be a massive swing towards home care and away from the nursing home reliance on the traditional nursing home sector as we know it. And I think more and more of the money is going to be in huge. I think you will see a very seismic shift in the next budget towards home care. And that is the future. But home care itself has to come to the party as well. They have to pay the proper wage to their workers. They have to pay sick leave and all of that. And I have told the sector this in, in no uncertain terms as well in my capacity now, that they have to come to the party as well. And if they do that, you know, I think the government will more than compensate and we need to be able to put packages in place where people can come out of hospital straight to home and instead of have 45 minutes in the morning and, and 25 in the evening, that they can have six hours a day instead of having to win. So that can all be done. And I'm delighted to bring the insights I have from being a minister for older people and a passion for that area to the HCCI who approached me and asked me when I come on their board. I'm on a number of other boards, company boards as well. Some will be choosing to announce it as time goes by, some will not. But that's the role I am is I'm available to companies who want me to come on board in a kind of an advisory capacity of whether it's a director. Or a, 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 I'm studying in college, doing a, a course to become a company director, to qualify a company director. And that's where my future is. So the HCCI is, is one aspect of that. But I'm thrilled to be involved in that care of the elder and that's where I see my biggest passion at the moment because that is huge evolution ahead of us uh, and I've seen it crystallise and I think I've driven a lot of that crystallising during my time as minister and I think I could even be more effective in the private industry bringing that to reality and giving them the insights and the encouragement to to drive that forward. And is that something we're seeing in other countries Jim a move to home care now as opposed to the you know, the whole retirement village, which is kind of where we thought we were going maybe 10 years ago. Well, we're going to both. I mean, home care will complement the move to the retirement. The retirement village will always be there and home care will be a part of that. So there's a statutory home care scheme, which will put home care on a statutory footing. So in other words, if you or I need home help on our day comes, Siobhan, we won't be waiting on a wing and a prayer or ringing the local TD and hoping he can get it for us. You'll get it by statute. You'll be entitled to it by law. Other countries, I follow very closely New York. Michael Dowling is the head of the largest healthcare company over there, an Irishman who I've got to know very well and I've watched the Australian model, the New Zealand model, all of that. So really what you're going to see is in Ireland, traditionally, you just have the home and the nursing home and it was one or the other. And you have a lot of people in nursing home who should never have been in there. Now, as soon as they went in there, went in there for a few months, they needed nursing home care. They'd be conditioned very quickly. But there were people who were living in rural areas out in a two-bed house or two-story house, big rattling old house, and they just started to go down very quickly and they couldn't be left there on their own. So they were into nursing home and they were lying in bed for 21 of the 24 hours a day and they deconditioned too fast. So what we are, what I've been doing for the three years as Minister and what is going to become the reality is build up a whole continuum from their own home. You may not get to stay in your own home, but get in to stay in, in a step-down home, a supported environment where there's home help three, four, five, six hours a day and, you know, all that kind of thing, depending on, on the level of, of your need. Uh, you'll always have a need for a nursing home. You will always have a need, but not to the extent that we have relied on it in Ireland today. People will be spending much, much shorter time in nursing home. You will be much more acutely ill before you need nurse-led clinical care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, ideally, you should only be in a nursing home for two to three months at most before you die. You know, you shouldn't have to be there for years and all of that if you can be in a, in a kind of a, a midway supported living environment. And that is going to happen. But we have to put the investment, which I think you'll see in this budget, uh, into the home care sector. We have to have it under guaranteed by statute and regulated, which I have driven an awful lot of that development in my time as a minister. And that's all about to come to, to pass. So that is very, very exciting development for our society and for genuine you know, revolution of care of the elderly. And I, I intend to be a part of that now on the outside world as well. But is, is that just diverting money from one sector to another? Because I would, I would be quite cynical now at the amount of investment we can afford to put into any new plans, given the amount of money we have spent on the pandemic, and that was going to have to be paid at some stage. And then we mm -hmm. had a report last week, I think, from Jim Power saying that our pensions um, is basically... Uh, a juggernaut coming at us that we're not going to be able in 10 or 15 years or 20 years when, when I'd be looking for my pension, there'd be mm -hmm. nothing left in the kitty. So how are we going to fund the likes of a whole new um, move from, from one sector of the health service to another? 
Where's that money? Okay, well, well, in the first, in the very first instance, anyway, I mean, what I would envisage ultimately happening is we spend a billion euro on, on nursing homes at the moment, roughly, and half a billion on home care. I'd like to see that reversed over three to four years. Uh, you see more of a reluctance to uh, go into nursing homes already because of COVID. COVID has expedited the journey we are on. It hasn't altered it, and this isn't reactive. Uh, I had, and I'm not both, but that was my my principal philosophy very much as a minister, and was driving that way anyway. And COVID happened to be a blessing in disguise to kind of expedite it and bring it to a head and get people to move that way. So people are more reluctant to go into nursing homes at the moment, and they are, you know, there's a fear around it and all of that. So people are more anxious to stay at home and much more anxious. So if you divert half a billion, you can't do that in one go so you're going to have to bring it in as new funding in the first year and two years but you will see a lessening demand on nursing homes as the more people get to live in their own home for longer so it's not necessarily a massive increase in spending okay, now people tell you it's a lot of people stay in their own home than a nursing home that's a, that's a moot point if you need 100 hours of home care a week it's not cheaper to stay in your own home than a nursing home you know we have to be a bit real about that but this isn't new investment it's really just reorientating uh, a more sustainable approach that can actually cost, you know, similar to that, you know, to get the same level. It has to be an outcomes focus and we have to look at outcomes of what we're putting into it. That's what we traditionally always look at. But look at what we're getting for the money we're spending. In well, there's going to be a saving from a health point of view because I'd imagine people would be happier in their own homes and they may get a better health outcome then as a result. So we may be able to cut down on the cost. Well, you see, people are going to be coming out of hospital now so fast, Siobhan. You know, wait till you see this winter. People, if any of us have to come into a hospital event, you will be out so fast. It won't be, you know, there is no hanging around hospital. Hospital is, is such an unsafe place to be if you don't need to be there. So, you know, and particularly if you're anyway elderly and vulnerable and underlying conditions. So that's where the, the real emphasis is going to home care. You know, we need to get people out very quickly. Um, you can't be saying, you know, they're very stiff and they can only barely walk, whatever. You need to get them home and get them help to do it at home and to recuperate and all of that at home. Before they were going to nursing homes, the transitional care unit and Clonakilty being a very good example of that, you know, but you'll have now more of an emphasis actually actually getting him home and putting in the supports around them at home. Uh, that's where it is going to go. And COVID has really expedited, as I say, all of that. And tell me, you, you worked in the hospital in Clonakilty um, for a while there at, at the kind of the height of the pandemic, really, Jim, wasn't it? In the kitchens. How did you find that? Or like, what, what, what possessed you to want to do that in your spare yeah, time? It was a really interesting time. I suppose it was a really challenging time. I was in Minister for the Older People. I couldn't really go up to Dublin at the height of it and be involved in the So all of my meetings were online and things like that. So I got a call. I'm the chair of the Friends, the core that we call ourselves, of Clinical Day Community Hospital. I'm the chairman of that. So the matron rang me and said, or the director of nursery up there rang me and said, would I find anybody in the community who would be willing to come up at weekends to take the food from the kitchen around to all the different wards to deliver it because they couldn't have cross-contamination, you know, staff from the wards going to the kitchen and vice versa. So they needed somebody to take well. And I said, consider it done, I'll do it. And she said, oh my God, we're not having, you were a minister or whatever, we're not having you come up here put the trolley around the place. I said, seriously, I don't want, you know, I said, it'll be done. I said, I would love it. I knew, like I was doing these online things five days a week with, you know, Minister Harris and all this in HI, Tyke Daly, and whom I saw your podcast as well recently with. Uh, I was doing all of these things and this was going to give me a first-hand insight into what actually it's like in the nursery home with an outbreak of COVID. There was an outbreak of COVID there at the time, quite a serious one. So I was up there, uh, booted and suited and gowned and masked and all the rest. And like I knew very quickly, people did say to me, because you were great to go up there in the as in people around the ground said, God, a lot of people are running from COVID and you're going right into it. But I knew instinctively, thankfully, I proved right, that I was safer up there than I was going to Dunn stores or going to any shop. I don't mean to mention any particular <laughs> Yes, going to any grocery store. We'll throw an Aldi a little just to make sure they all get collected. But you know, I want, yeah, it's a bit, I was safer, I knew in the hospital because I was aware there was COVID there. So I was so, you know, you took the necessary precaution. And I spent, I don't know, seven, eight weeks there just during the weekends. Some of them were long weekends, as in Bank Holiday Mondays as well. And for those seven or eight weeks and COVID was all over the place, not all over, but there was, a, you know, significant outbreaks of COVID. Well, Clonakilty Hospital wasn't probably the worst hit, I think, in West Cork, certainly. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, at that time. And uh, look, they managed it superbly, really, to be fair. It was a whole new experience for everybody. They had to get on top of it very quick, very quick bring in the fetch control, all of that. The staff just were phenomenal. They genuinely were, and I know everybody says that, but they were just phenomenal. And for me to witness all of that firsthand and then be contributing to very high-level discussions at the Department of Health, and HSE level on a weekly, daily ongoing basis at that stage. I had first-hand knowledge. I wasn't intimidated by any of the terminology. I wasn't kind of saying, trying to figure and imagine when they were talking about, you know, where do you locate, co-locate, or any of these terms that were, I can't remember now, that were strange at the time. All of a sudden, they became very free-flowing to me because, and I had the confidence to say, actually, you know, I'm on the ground beside one of these nursing homes. I can tell you here now, this is what needs to, you know, whatever. You're, so, yourself and Leo, I think, isn't it? 
Leo, well, yeah, I was trying to compete with Leo for the, uh, <laughs> the attention. For the, for but the no, I, it, it, yeah, the photo op and all of that. No, it, it just gave me genuine, and, and I loved it. And look, I'm very fond of that facility, and I became very attached to it during my time as minister. As I say, I'm chair, I'm still chair of the Friends of it. Um, and, but the, know, the patients there must have got great distraction too from their fears by having a junior minister rattling around bringing them their dinner. <laughs> Yeah, either that or I frightened the life out of this and it's very bad if, he, if he's around. Uh, I used to be in an outdoor, I suppose that was a part when we had Sunday sessions, which obviously Maybe we had to they, stop. They probably thought they were delirious, Jim, did they? Yeah, they saw the minister. But we used to do Sunday sessions every Sunday and I loved them. I mean, we, you know, musicians volunteered a couple hours on a Sunday evening and all the patients were brought in. And, you know, myself and some of the other friends of our friends, our corridor group, would be there with, with us. Any two of us would be there every Sunday. So I kind of got to know them all, the patients there. So it wasn't really this daunting task of going into a hospital that I didn't know. You know, I got to know the staff. I got to know during my time as that. So I loved it. I mean, we've set up the corridor about a year and a half. Uh, we set an ambition to raise 100 grand. We've that well surpassed at this stage. You know, we, we've um, had lots of successes there and I've loved every bit of that. So I'm going to continue my, my attachment and my involvement with that hospital through that role. So this was just a further aspect of that, to be honest, more than trying to, you know, there wasn't the political gain or anything. I didn't need any publicity or thanks or anything from anybody for it. I was gone from politics and, and all of that at that time. That's great. Um, so tell me now, did you get any time to, uh, like the rest of the world, with the exception of journalists, um, time to watch Netflix and read and take up a new skill other than kitchen duties? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I think kitchen duties really was, was a big part of it. I mean, I, I learned to make brown bread, very proud of myself. <laughs> okay. Well, you weren't in on the, the sourdough um, obsession, were you? No, no, not quite that, but just to make basic brown bread and curry. Curry is my big weakness in life and making curry from scratch and all of that. So yeah, definitely spending a good bit of time in the kitchen. Uh, Audible was my kind of guilty pleasure, was right. Audible, just listening to the books uh, through, the, through the earpiece and going for long walks uh, during the lockdown there or whatever, you know, just out walking. I used to get up really early in the morning, kind of half five, six a.m., made a point of doing that every morning and getting out for an eight or 10k walk. The weather was amazing. And I had the thing in my ears and listening to whatever storybook I was going through and all that. So that'd be my memories of lockdown. And then you got back around eight o'clock in the morning. And, you know, there was three. I remember one night talking to an official at 10 to 1 in the morning and getting up the following morning at quarter past six, talking to an official again in the Department of Health. So there was some really strange times in the middle of it. And then things calmed again. And, you know, so I was able to, I got more than my share of downtime, to be fair, during lockdown and absolutely loved it. And I think that gave me the whole sense of, I, I had a very good lead out of politics. I was still, you know, attached to it in some way while I was still minister, but I wasn't a gentle, It was a bit of a gentle exit for you, wasn't it? Because it was, I think really, at one was. point we thought, we thought you were gone and then you popped up opening the new mental yeah, health all, uh, facility. I was always fascinated with that how the media kind of, you know, assumed because you weren't, and I took up lots of your national colleagues on this, just because I wasn't gracing the airwaves with my wonderful presence or whatever, I like joke. Um, you know, and, then we, and then we accused you of being um, um, gagged by the by the minister, yes, I think. Yes, I looked, it was, I mean, not fun because these were very tough times, but that's all part of the able club of politics. And, you know, that's what the politics did for me when I did first. I had this thing about the media are awful and this is awful and that is awful. All of that as you get a real experience which you said, you know what, no, there's two sides to everything. And yes, there's a bit of this and yes, a bit of you. You become much more measured and much less dim enough in everything, you know, that... Uh, so, uh, yeah, look, what I've learned in politics, I could have spent 30 years in university and I don't think I'd have learned it in, you know, it was incredible. And that's really what I'd say if you were to ask me some of politics in one word was learning. Oh, my God, did I learn. And I love that. Great. Well, listen, thank you very much for joining us, Jim. I think we've even gone a bit over time today, but it was it was well worth the chat. And listen, best of luck with the with the new role. And I'm sure we'll be hearing lots more from you. No bother, well, thanks for asking me. I thought everybody had forgotten about me, so I was delighted. <laughs> Once in oh, politics, delighted. never forgotten. <laughs> Enjoy chatting with you. Thanks, Siobhan. And so to this week's newspaper. On page one, we're taking a look at the plight of local fishermen. Patrick Murphy of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation tells us that the combined challenges of COVID, a no-deal Brexit looming, and now controversial penalty points legislation have all come together to create a perfect storm for the local fishing industry and indeed the, the national fishing industry too and he describes it as game over if Brexit becomes the final nail in their coffin. We have an extensive interview with him inside 
on foot of a podcast he did with us a few weeks ago. And we also have an interesting story on page one about a young doctor from Bantry. 23-year-old Owen O'Flynn contracted COVID-19 a few months ago, but he had actually not realised it at the time. He'd had some mild symptoms, but it wasn't until a few months later in May of this year when it really hit him hard and it left him struggling with problems with his lungs, his heart and his kidneys and landed him in ICU in CUH where he had been working. So we have a very in-depth interview with Owen about that and he issues a warning to young people to realise that they are not immune from this. He was a very fit and healthy young man who had climbed Kilimanjaro and um, he really wants to stress the point that no matter how fit and healthy you are, it can strike you and it can strike you hard. So we have a full uh, story with him, uh, interview with him inside on that. We also have uh, a report on the tragic death of the young man from McCroom who died last weekend at a house in Wilton and some more details on that case. And on page two we have a quite disturbing court case from Clannacilty involving a Garda who feared he was going to lose his finger after uh, a row with a man um, when he was... Um, he was accompanied by two other Gargi at the scene. And we also have a nice story from Bantry Fire Station because they've got a brand new fire engine which does uh, an awful lot more than the previous one and of course it's very important because Bantry is located um, probably the closest uh, station to the Whitty Oil Terminal so we've seen before how important a good fire service in Bantry is for that in particular. On page three, we have quite a disturbing story about a convicted sex offender who was working in a charity shop in Skibbereen and the fact that um, when members of the public identified him, they also made the point that this was in very close proximity to two play schools. We also have a report on illegal dumping in the area, which is becoming quite critical now, according to one councillor. And also the shortage of school buses this uh, week given that the schools are back now and there's still uh, quite a few um, vacancies for bus drivers. Bus Erin has put out the call this week for more drivers and even some taxis to come to the rescue because with social distancing they need more vehicles on the routes. We also have a, a nice story on page five about a new TV series that has a lot of West Cork links and a lot of very well-known names and it's starting this Sunday night on RTE. And also we have an update on recent dog pets in the area. And in news features this week we look at the aftermath of the flooding and we do a town by town detailed report on what happened and what the plans are to fix that. We also have a feature on a new book on Irish uh, newspapers and their role in Ireland's uh, troubled history and the article in particular focuses in on the role of the Southern Star which quite significant especially around the uh, civil war and the war of independence and a lot of our readers won't realize that Michael Collins was also a shareholder at one point and the paper would have printed his man election manifesto. In property we have a lovely house in Dunwarley which has its own beach and stunning sea views and in business we have details of awards for quite a few local businesswomen this week. In motoring we review the new Volvo XC60 and in farming, we report on the cancellation of the National Planning Championships and the effect COVID has had on land values. In our community section, we have all the usual regular columns, but we also look at the first full year of the new Air Ambulance Service and Emma Connie continues her COVID diary. And if all that wasn't enough, this week we also have an excellent home and garden magazine, which is packed with information and advice on interiors, Houseplants, future homes, budget DIY, feng shui and lots more. So don't forget, if you can't get to the shops, you can subscribe online by going to southernstar.ie and clicking on the e-paper tab. Or call the office on 028-212-00 for a postal copy to be sent out to you. And now for this week's music. Occasionally in our podcast series, our various presenters take a look back at our popular Southern Star session series of videos, all recorded in our studios in Skibbereen. And this week, it's the choice of our digital manager and podcast editor, Jack McCarran. Jack has chosen John Black's song, The Blackwater. 
Blackwater was taken from John's fourth album, Thistle and Thorn, which was recorded between Clonakilty and Lewisville, Kentucky, during the early part of 2018. John's latest album, The Embers, was released in February and is available to purchase from his website, johnbleck.com, and that's John B-L-E-K. So here's The Blackwater. Southern Star Coronavirus Podcast. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe to our podcast, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Acast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to another Southern Star Media podcast production. Stay connected to West Cork by subscribing to our e-paper and support local, quality and trusted journalism. Visit www.subscribe.southernstar.ie